let's go back into the wayback machine here to the election last year. Of course, the win by the NDP. And on the night that the Liberals got thumped here in the last provincial election, party leader Andrew Wilkinson made this announcement. Leading the BC Liberals has been a great honour, but now it's time for me to make room for someone else to take over this role. I've asked the party president to work with the party executive to immediately determine the timeline for a leadership selection process to determine my successor as leader of the BC Liberals. Okay, the BC Liberal leadership contest is on, and we now have the first declared candidate for the job, Liberal MLA Ellis Ross uh, represents Skeena in the B.C. Legislature, uh, former chief counselor of the Heisla First Nation. He is running for the Liberal leadership. He joins me now. Ellis, thanks a lot for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Glad to be here. Appreciate your time this morning and the announcement yesterday that you're seeking the Liberal leadership. Why do you want this job? Uh, mainly because uh, I'm not really happy with where B.C.'s heading in the last three years now. And I truly love being from BC. I love being from Canada. And I do want a future for my kids, my grandkids. And I want BC to be strong, uh, society-wise, economic-wise. Uh, I think we owe it to our future to actually make sure that happens. Right. You're, you're running for the leadership of a party that was uh, pretty much a dynasty in this province for a long time. Uh, ruled the province for 16 years. Uh, got pretty soundly beaten in the in the last election. What went wrong in the last election, Allison, in your opinion, for the Liberals? You know, I'm not really sure because mainly I was focused on Skeena. I was focused yeah. on environmental issues, uh, economic issues, uh, issues that were affecting society. But uh, I read a lot of the narrative that was happening out there, out, out in the, the world. And I just think ultimately what happened is that nobody really expected uh, a snap election to be called in the middle of a pandemic. Right. Nobody, and especially for us, when we had cooperated with the government along with the Green Party, uh, the last thing I ever thought was nobody, you know, including the NDP National Party, said that a, an election would be called. It is what it is, but, uh, you know, I, I think uh, the, the voters, you know, saw it a different way. Yeah, I think it was a very sneaky move by John Horgan for sure. I mean, he, he I basically stabbed the Green Party, his partners there in the back, and, and double-crossed them. But the reason that he did it was he was looking at the opinion polls and he saw an opportunity to seize power, and, and it worked out perfectly for him. So, I mean, it's difficult. this is a difficult period for this, uh, for this Liberal Party. When you look back at that election, I mean, you know, Andrew Wilkinson, we just heard the clip played, for, played there, the, the previous leader has now stepped down. Uh, he took a lot of heat, you know, people thought that he ran a poor campaign. What did you, what's your opinion of uh, Andrew Wilkinson as the previous leader of the party? No, he did what he could, and he, he was a good leader. I mean, this uh, Andrew was actually selected by the B.C. Liberal members themselves. And you got to remember, there's 87 writings in B.C., yeah. and it was my responsibility to make sure that I won Skeena, that I, that I did everything I could. And so I did it. And then to place all this blame on Andrew, that, that's 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 not fair you know they, we, we've got to think about the entire system across bc and we can't just lay it all on his shoulders speaking to liberal mla ellis ross he has just declared his uh his leadership bid for leader of the bc liberal party um do you think that we're living in a time these are such strange times right now during the pandemic and i wonder if the electorate the mood of the electorate or the way people approach politics and elections has just completely been turned on its head because i just look at a lot of people are looking at incumbent governments. Uh, people are looking for government assistance to get them through this pandemic. And it just gives a, a, a government or a party like the NDP maybe an unusual advantage uh, during a time of a pandemic. Do you think that's happening? Do you think the, the, do you think the voters are looking at the NDP as, as a way to get them through uh, this pandemic and that makes it tough for your party? Well, it does. But, but, but more importantly, I think it actually backfired on the voters of BC. Because if you remember, up until then, you know, BC was slapping the curve. At, at the request of Dr. Bonnie Henry, we were yeah. doing what we're told. And then a snap election is called. And now the curve goes up. And the, the promise was, it said, oh, we need a stable government to actually handle the pandemic. Right. Well, actually, the reverse has happened. And this is what happens when you, you incorporate politics into what now is, has become a global crisis. 
And right. it's going to be a while before we get back back to any you know resemblance of normalcy. Right. And that's society wise, that's economic wise, and then I might venture out to say even mental mental wise. It's just it's a really tough time to be going through. It's I'm seeing my own community. I'm seeing my friends and family. And it's going to be a long time before people recover. Right. What do you think of the performance of this government? What What would you like to see change? Like, if, if you were if you were the premier, the liberals were back in power. What would be your priorities? What do you think needs to happen? Well, I've always believed that uh, the economy is closely linked to society, and yeah. now that's been broken. And I, I could see that uh, there's there's a lot of people suffering with uh, the restrictions and whatnot. What I'd like to see is now. Okay, we've had three kicks at the can. We've had SARS, we've had uh, the bird flu, and now we've had COVID. At the very least, we should be able to put together a broad framework of a plan that shows the people, hey, we're not going to surprise you. We're going to be upfront with you in terms of what's going to happen if this ever happens again. And we've got measures to make sure that this, this actually transitions smoothly. And I, mean, I get it. You know, when, when back in March of last year, when this all started to become a reality, I met with a doctor. A doctor specializes in viruses. And he told me, he said, you know, we don't know anything. And we're not sure if we'll ever know anything. So we're, we're going to have to figure this out as we go along. And I think we've had time now to figure this out. Right. And so I'd like to be a part of a team that actually helps repair society uh, more than more than anything else. Speaking to Liberal MLA, Ellis Ross, running for the leadership of the, of the BC Liberal Party. Ellis, you've had a fascinating career. Before you got into politics, you were the chief counselor of the Heisla Nation. Uh, you've been a guy, you mentioned the economy, you've been a guy who's been very outspoken in, in favor of natural resource development. Um, we know that like First Nations are often divided on these big projects. What's what's that been like for you as like an indigenous leader in in our province, sort of championing these projects that that some First Nations or some indigenous people uh, oppose? Is that tough? Difficult? Well, it's it's, it's bittersweet, really, it, yeah. because you know well, when we talk about racism in BC, uh, I get called a lot of names by First Nations people themselves. I get really? called slated, uh, a colonialist. Uh, I get called an apple, and yet these people that are calling me these names have no idea why I'm doing it in the first place. It's because I could see firsthand what it meant for a person to get a job. And then that person, you know, walked away from substance abuse, walked away from the path that took them to prison, uh, walked away from uh, children going into government care. And you could see it. You could see it multiply. And so when you see that happening, you know, you want want to see more. And this, this actually goes for every segment of our population in BC. And this is partly why I really attach myself to the BC Liberals. You know, you get a strong economy, there's right. got to be a way to get that economy working for the less less advantaged. Right. There's, so, there's got to be a way. Right. So when you look at um, First Nations and Indigenous communities, you see economic development as the path forward, right? Oh, yeah. And, and it's proven, especially in our region. It's proven. Um our community, we don't talk about the Indian Act. We don't talk about being oppressed. You know, we're, we're, talk, we're seeing kids as young as 22, 25, getting mortgages in their own right off reserve. We see them going on holidays before the pandemic. We see them enjoying the benefits of the 21st century, just like everybody else. And if, if you lift that segment of the population, whether you're First Nations or not, you lift them up, that just makes us stronger as a province. And it's, it's very, I'm very proud to be a part of that story. Ellis Ross, last question for you. Uh, you're the first out of the gate here seeking the leadership of the BC Liberal Party. Do you have any, uh, any support in caucus? And can we anticipate any other Liberal MLAs coming out and, and jumping on board your campaign? I doubt it. I really haven't gone down that road of asking <laughs> other MLAs for support because I just don't want to put them in that position. Uh, but I just think if they want to get on board, they'll get on board. And I do think there'll be other MLAs announcing their decision as well. Alice, I'm following your campaign very closely. Thank you for your time this morning. Not a problem. Thank you very much.
All right, welcome back to the show. Here we go now with Canada's new Western Separatist Party, the Maverick Party of Canada, formerly known as Wexit Canada. Wexit, of course, stands for Western Exit. The party is pressing for major reforms to benefit Western Canada, or we're out of here, an independence option for Western Canada, B.C., Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, team up and form a new country. Now, how realistic is is this Wexit movement? Have a listen to this report here by Sylvana Benelich from a Global BC reporter. The Wexit or Western Exit movement to separate from Canada has exploded since the federal election. The group has more than 270,000 members on its Facebook page. Hundreds of people showed up at recent rallies in the province saying the West wants out. Wexit has even applied for federal political party status. We want people to here to have a high quality of life and it's only through self-determination which can only come through separation that we're going to achieve it and we will achieve it. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Jay Hill. He is the leader of the Maverick Party of Canada, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Jay Hill, thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Jay, people will remember you as a, as a long-serving uh, conservative MP from, from northern BC. When did you get into this uh, new party? Well, it was last June that I made a decision to join the party. Uh, at that time, you're quite correct, it was called Wexit Canada, and it was solely... Uh, focused on separatism, on building an independent nation in Western Canada. Since then, we've adapted a a different mission statement, which is basically a twin-track approach. Either uh, Central and Eastern Canada are open to fundamentally changing the constitution of the country, modernizing it from the 1800s when it was written, uh, to better serve Western Canada, or we pursue Western independence. What are some of the constitutional reforms that you're seeking? Well, uh, the first one is a, a guarantee that the provinces have market access in addition to the constitutional guarantee that they have the, um, you know, the unfettered right uh, to uh, their natural resource uh, products. Right. And uh, obviously that's a growing concern, uh, certainly for the prairies. We recently saw the cancellation by President, new President Biden of the Keystone XL pipeline. Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's a big concern for Western Canada to ensure that we have market access. Uh, the second would be a protection for the arbitrary intrusion by the federal government into areas of provincial jurisdiction. And that amendment would ensure that uh, before the uh, federal government uh, imposed restrictions in certain areas, uh, that they would have to seek the uh, acceptance of the provinces. And uh, this is something that has been going on consistently, certainly for the last several decades. Uh, The third uh, amendment we're seeking would be to enshrine private property rights into Canada's constitution. And um, and then we've got two others as well. I don't want to take up the whole time just talking about constitutional amendments or, as we call okay. it, our option A, right. uh, option B being laying the foundations for an independent West. Okay, let's talk about that option B. How would this work? So it would be B.C., Saskatchewan, Alberta, and Manitoba, right? What about the territories? Would they be part of it too? They could be if they if they chose to join. Uh, certainly, that would be our intent to offer them the option of staying with uh, old Canada or coming with new Western Canada. Um, look, this is a, a, a long pr- uh, process uh, that would uh, entail a lot of intermediate steps. Mike, uh, we recognize that that uh, you know uh, under. Our constitutional law in Canada and the fallout from the 1995 Quebec referendum, clearly the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that the secession of one or more provinces is legal in Canada if you follow a certain process. Um, In fact, they went beyond that and they said uh, they ruled that if a province can secede, if the country is divisible, then so too is a province. So that poses a lot of interesting questions, uh, but one of the first steps would be to encourage the majority of uh, Westerners to demand to have a say in uh, their future by expecting to hold provincial referendums on independence. 
Right. Speaking of Jay Hill, he's former conservative MP. He is now the leader of the Maverick Party of Canada, uh, arguing for a, an independence option for for Western Canada. Where'd that name come from? The Maverick Maverick Party. It, it sounds like a name of a football team or something, not a political party. Maverick Party. <laughs> what does that What does that mean? Well, uh, when we. Uh we're forced uh, to change our name last summer. Uh, so this came about uh, in about September when we changed from Wexit Canada. Uh, the, the folks that have the trademark for Wexit Canada, you, you mentioned it in your, your uh, early clip uh, before I came on, yeah. uh, that uh, the Wexit movement uh, gained t- tremendous steam across Western Canada following the uh, election of 2019, of October of 2019. Uh, those people that own that trademark uh, determined that they wanted to maintain control of the brand, and so they asked us to change the name of the federal party that they themselves had registered or applied for registration with Elections Canada last January. So it's just over a year old. So then in in September, we changed the name, and we had uh, a lively debate at our, our board level to try and come up with a name. We wanted something that would obviously... Uh, catch people's attention, uh, but I'm sure that there's many, uh, you know, British Columbians that can also relate to the name. Uh, you know, it's it's nothing to do with old cowboy or Top Gun movies. It has to do with um, innovation, integrity, and independence. If you look at the description uh, in a dictionary of what a maverick is, we believe the West was built by mavericks, and they came and still come. Uh, to Western Canada in all shapes and sizes, all ages, both genders, every color and ethnicity. Uh, there are people who have dared to uh, dream big and uh, unafraid to take risks. And that's the description of Mavericks. And, and we believe that Western Mavericks, uh, if there was ever a time in our history for them to step forward and to take a risk, it's now. Okay, speaking of Jay Hill, leader of the Maverick Party of Canada. So we could have an election in our country this year. I think Trudeau wants an election. I I think some of the announcements we're seeing from Trudeau, especially in the last couple of weeks, just smack to me of like staging for a potential election call. Uh, If if we do get into an election, like how many how many candidates would the Maverick Party of Canada be running? Well, first of all, I need to correct you. Our, we're the Maverick Party. We're not of Canada because, uh, as we've already discussed, Mike, one of our options is to actually secede from Canada or at least have some. So you don't have the name. You don't have, you don't have the name. Right. So you don't have the name Canada in your party name. No, we don't. I understand. Okay. It's just the Maverick Party. Gotcha. Uh, okay. Uh, well, we're still in our infancy. Obviously, since September, our board and, and a, a slew of, of volunteers that are helping us across the four western provinces have been extremely active on many fronts. It, you don't build a federal party, as you can imagine, Mike, overnight. It takes a lot of work and a lot of pl- uh, things to put in, into place. Uh, we are in the process right now of soliciting and uh, screening uh, candidates, potential candidates, uh, for the next election campaign so that we're ready if Mr. Trudeau calls, a, well, if he ever gets a governor general that he can go to and, and ask for a writ. Um, that we, you know, if we end up in a quick election, uh, we want to run, obviously, in some uh, ridings across Western Canada. Um, my personal preference would be to see that we have strong candidates with organizations behind them to have a credible campaign in fewer rather than greater uh, numbers of constituencies. Um, we already have uh, some uh, electoral district associations up and running in, uh, in 11 of the ridings now, and we're working feverishly to try and get as many in place as possible. Okay. Would, is there a danger, though, that the, a Maverick Party candidate could split the vote? Like I, like, I just wonder what the Conservative Party is thinking about this. You know, you take a look at some of the polling, and... Uh, the idea of Western separatism is not really a fringe idea in places like Alberta. Like I looked at one poll, it's got like 25% support. So, I mean, it's not like it's, you know, a fringe wacky idea. It is, it is out there. And do you think, is there a danger that a Maverick Party candidate could, could divide the vote and be a spoiler, hurt the Conservative Party? You mean you might accidentally elect a bunch of liberals? Well, uh, not unless the 
election is for quite some time, Mike. And by that, I mean we would have to be fully organized with electoral districts and a lot of the ridings that are currently uh, held by Conservatives by very narrow margins. The, the ridings we're targeting in British, well, in all four of the provinces, they're predominantly in Alberta, predominantly in uh, rural, uh, the rural areas of the, of the four provinces. Um, we uh, intend to... Uh, uh, contest those particular uh, constituencies uh, first and foremost. Uh, they're constituencies where the conservative incumbents won by huge margins, upwards of 80% of the vote in some cases, and certainly okay. over 60 in most cases. So there's no chance in those ridings of electing anybody but a conservative or a maverick to go to Ottawa. Uh, it, it's simply the math. You just have to look at the math. And okay. the reality is there won't, there won't be any vote split, or the vote split will be between Conservatives and Mavericks. What, what do you in say? In the other ridings, I mean, yeah. uh, we're going to be obviously slower in getting organized in them uh, because we don't have the same potential base of support. What do you, and um, what do you, we'll, we'll have to see what develops. What do you say to people who are, are listening to you this morning, Jay Hill, and saying, like, oh, are you kidding me? Western separatism? Like, this is wacky. This is Looney Tunes stuff. I mean, this is just a bunch of grumpy old men, and this has got, this has got no chance uh, at ever happening. You know, like, why do you think, why do you think that this is a realistic option for Western Canada? Well, I believe that Western Canada, all four Western provinces, have been used and abused by Central Canada ever since Confederation. And I think there's ample evidence of that on many fronts. And uh, I believe that the majority of Westerners are coming to that realization. So uh, voters are going to have a choice in the next election, at least in some of the Western ridings. They can continue to do what they've always done and send um, a, a representative of one of the other parties. And when they get to Ottawa, they'll be told how to, how to vote, how to talk, what to say, uh, by and large, by central Canada. That's how it's always worked, and it's how it always will work. So for those Westerners that realize that something has to change, either we change our archaic constitution to allow for better government that treats all regions fairly, or the West should look at an option like independence. Either of those are not easy, Mike. Uh, in fact, they've got huge hurdles, whether it's amending the Constitution or whether it's a province or provinces seceding from the country. We recognize that. We're not illusionary to, the, to how difficult this will be. But yeah. you have to start somewhere. And uh, we believe that now is the time uh, to start uh, okay. advocating for a more fair and balanced system in Canada. Okay, um, we're watching it with uh, great interest. Thank you for your time today. Thank you, Mike, for your interest. Uh, much appreciated. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Justin Trudeau's gun ban now. The Trudeau government moving ahead with its plan to ban more than 1,500 models of assault weapons as the government defines them. Of course, it came in the aftermath of last year's deadly shooting rampage in Nova Scotia, the worst in Canadian history. Big developments on this file this week. The Trudeau government unveiling details of its gun buyback program. There are tens of thousands of these now banned weapons in Canada. Canada. What are gun owners supposed to do with these guns now? You're not allowed to use them anymore. Well, the government says, we'll buy them back from you. Okay, how is that going to work? Will Canadian gun owners actually sell their guns back to the government? How much is the government going to pay for them? Okay, let's discuss now with my guest, Tristan Hopper, columnist and reporter at the National Post. Very pleased to welcome him. Tristan, thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. Appreciate it a lot. Let's listen to a couple of clips here first, uh, Tristan. Here's uh, Bill Blair, federal cabinet minister here, talking about this buyback program. He says this is going to be a big success. Have a listen. We also know that as these new measures will eliminate all legal use of these weapons, the majority of existing owners will have no reason to retain them. We are creating the appropriate conditions and protections to facilitate a fair, respectful, and safe buyback program for these newly prohibited weapons. Okay, so thousands of these weapons out there, Tristan. What do you think? Will gun owners sell these guns back to the government? Will there be a big uh, big buy-in in this program, do you think? 
Uh, well, it's uh, you basically have two options. So if you owned uh, one of these guns, uh, so what happened is on May 1st, uh, the government came up with this completely surprise announcement, uh, which said these 1,500 makes and models, just this massive list. And if you recall, there was a bunch of problems with that list. They accidentally banned, like, coffee because uh, they thought it was a gun and stuff. Uh, so anyway, there was this list of 1,500 firearms. So you had gun owners across the country sort of scrambling and saying, is my gun suddenly a prohibited firearm? And a lot of them were. So you had a gun that the day before you could have legally taken it to the range, taken it hunting, whatever. And then there's an edict from Ottawa. And suddenly that is basically, uh, you can't even take it out of storage. You can't put it in your car. You can't transport it anywhere. You can't take it to the range, uh, or you're committing a criminal offense. Right. So, um, you're in a situation right now where there's thousands of gun owners across Canada who, if you have one of these firearms, you basically can't touch it. You have to just keep it in your home. Um, and the options now are you can sell it to the government and hope they give you a good price, or you can just keep it and keep it in as a the technical term is prohibited uh, firearm, which you're allowed to have a prohibited firearm, despite the name prohibited, but you can't do anything with it. It just becomes right. basically a museum piece. You can't shoot it. You can't show it off. Uh, so the last time, the last time you've gone to a museum and there's uh, you know some Sturmgewehr that someone brought back from the battlefields of Europe, that's a prohibited firearm. So it right. can technically still shoot, but you're never allowed to shoot it. Right. You wrote a fascinating piece about this for the National Post and how this is going to work. And so for people who maybe have some of these these banned weapons now, like how much will the government pay for these guns? Do we know? Um, that hasn't been revealed. They say, uh, the average cost is going to be about $1,300. So I speculated because, uh, I mean, these, these are really expensive guns. Um, all of the guns on this list, uh, what they did is they called it assault style firearms. So there actually wasn't, there was no, uh, like there was no technical classification. It's not like they banned semi-automatic firearms or handguns, both of which could have made sense. They just banned every gun that kind of looked scary. Um, yeah. That <laughs> sounds like I'm a gun nut, but that's actually true. Because if you look at the list, there's a whole bunch of guns uh, that are still perfectly legal and non-restricted with equal capability to some of the guns they banned. So they would ban a gun that is just as deadly as one that is still perfectly legal, uh, but it looked scary and it was black and you know it looked like uh, a prop from a Schwarzenegger movie. Right. Yeah, exactly. And and this is one of the things that's really frustrating to, to gun rights advocates or anyone with some basic knowledge of this stuff. I mean, I, I think when a lot of people hear this term assault weapon in their minds, they're thinking of like a machine gun or something like that, which are which is already prohibited and banned in Canada. Like we're talking about semi-automatic rifles, like basically requires a separate pull of the trigger for each bullet mm, fire. Right. You can't like press the trigger you down. You can't even and get a machine gun bullets. in. Uh, yeah, you can't even get a machine gun in the U.S. Uh, oh, so right. yeah, semi-automatic means it loads automatically. So if I want to get a semi-automatic firearm, so I want to get a gun uh, with you know ten bullets in it. Uh, I forget the exact capacity, but one where I just go bam, 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 and I don't even have to cock it in between. I can still do that. It's yeah. just going to have a wood stock rather than a black stock. Right, yeah. A lot of it has to do with like a pistol grip or like you say, it's they're almost always like flat black in color. They're just scary looking guns, but yeah. they really don't function any differently than a, another, like a hunting rifle. But let me ask you this. like you, you speculate in your column in the National Post. Could people actually make a profit on this buyback program like if you if you have a bunch of these uh, these now banned firearms could you actually make big bucks by selling these guns to the government is that possible uh no actually unfortunately my, my job at the national post is to try and think of ways to you know uh, exploit government programs for personal gain uh partially <laughs> i have other job descriptions but uh gun buybacks there is a long and storied history of uh toying with gun buybacks uh so like when you when you see them at the municipal level toronto does this every once in a while is they'll say oh we'll give you a 200 bucks for any long gun you bring in, any long gun you want. And then what you can do is you can just go buy a bunch of super cheap rifles that are just rusty and you found them in a river and they're technically firearms, but not really. And you can pick up a whole bunch of those for like 40 or 50 bucks. You turn in a bunch of those, fight them, and they just get hand you 200 bucks for, for a gun. You can make quite a lot of money. This one's a little different, though, uh, because... Uh, yeah, a lot of them, uh, a lot of the guns on this list, uh, well, first of all, you can't sell them. So if I was thinking, oh, I'm just going to go on this, I'm going to load up a van, I'm going to drive across Canada, and I'm just going to buy all these banned firearms. 
yeah. from people. And, and then flip them. May first order that sort of retroactively called all of these illegal, you're not allowed to sell them. So that's sort of cut off. And there was also a bunch of stores who had these on display because uh, some of them, the day before, they were non-restricted, which is the lowest, the, the, basically the safest classification. That's a long gun. Uh, so that's you buy it, it's unregistered. You just got to get a, a, a license to be able to carry it around. That's the one you could take hunting, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so a lot of gun stores, they just got a letter May 1st saying, oh, yeah, you know, all those guns in your front window, uh, if you sell those, you go to jail. Um, so right. you can't buy them. And there's basically no other way to get them. So they instantly became prohibited. So the only real way you could get your hands, if you don't already have some, the only way you could get your hands on this, uh, on some of these guns, in order to flip them to the government, uh, is if you have a relative uh, who's able to bequeath them to you. And they're even looking to ban that. So even if you've got a grandpa that's got a bunch of, uh, a closet full of these guns, you can't touch it. Even if he wants to bequeath them to you, to continue to be prohibited firearms that you can't shoot or anything, uh, they're looking to banning the bat. So basically, when your grandpa is dies, it, you have to get him shot. Is it possible that people could try to smuggle guns across the border from the United States and into Canada simply to sell them to the government to make a quick buck? Yes. Yes, that is yeah. something that is technically possible. So some of the guns on this list, um, if they were a restricted firearm beforehand, the government's going to know where they are, like every handgun. Uh, is registered. The Ottawa pretty much knows where all of those are. But since some of them were non-restricted, they were long guns beforehand. Uh, yeah, you could just load up a trunk um, from somewhere in the state, just target the cheapest possible gun on this list, and then smuggle them into Canada. And then if you just flip them to Ottawa, they would have no way of knowing that, that these didn't start life as a legal Canadian gun. Now, I would advise against this. And when you're putting well, together that's criminal... A serious, that's a serious crime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Smuggling yeah. guns. If you're going to make a quick buck for the government, try and do one that you know, doesn't make you guilty of, of multiple federal offenses. So, uh, yeah, in terms of exploitation, I'd actually have to say uh, this is a pretty airtight government program. Um, no, it's, it's highly debatable whether it's going to do anything for gun violence, but uh, at least it can't be exploited. Okay. Interesting stuff. Tristan, thanks for coming on. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about standardized testing in schools now, notably the foundation skills assessment test given to students in grades four and seven. I got two kids in public school myself. In fact, one of my sons is in grade seven, and he took the FSA test a short time ago. Let's discuss now with my guest, Terry Mooring, president of the BC Teachers Federation. They've long opposed this test, and I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Terry, thanks a lot for coming on. You're welcome, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, the union just recently sent out an open letter to parents uh, advising them to withdraw their children from this foundation skills assessment test, the FSA test. Why is the union doing that? So we have had a long-standing campaign in opposition to the FSAs for a number of reasons, uh, and they include the fact that the data from the FSAs are used by outside groups to rank schools. And predictably, um, schools that tend to be public and in lower socioeconomic areas tend to rank poorly, on, uh, according to the FSAs. And uh, those schools that are private, um, that charge tuitions, tr- uh, tend to rank more highly. And so the FSAs are used to rank schools, as are the assessments from uh, secondary assessments as well. And so the ranking of schools is, is one of the really large issues that we have with the FSAs and the fact that the data is being used in that manner, which is a misuse of it. Um, but also there, isn't, there aren't any resources that are directed to schools when children don't do well in the FSAs. And so they, the FSAs aren't a diagnostic tool, and they don't give teachers any information that they don't already have about student progress. In fact, classroom teachers have so much more rich data about how students are doing than the FSAs could ever provide. And so there's a number of reasons why we have historically opposed them this year, in particular with the pandemic, uh, we feel it's an absolutely misuse of class time, uh, more than four and a half hours. That's a lot of valuable teaching and learning time when we've had students, you know, learning remotely this spring, some right. still learning remotely, uh, and, uh, and others having to self-isolate or in classes having to self-isolate. We think with all the factors in play right now uh, in our system, we know that some students are disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, that this data, in particular from this year, will be very flawed and skewed and a real outlier 
you know, in, in terms of the ability of the of the province to actually use it. And we would also note that places like Ontario uh, have decided not to go forward with their standardized assessments this year. And so, you know, again, this, there's a different decision that's being made in BC. Okay, let's talk a little bit about what this test is. I, I've taken a look at them uh, a few times over the years and, and to see exactly what sort of questions are on the test. And basically, government describes them as measuring a student's foundation skills, as evident in the name of the test. So reading, can, you know, can a kid write? Basic uh, math, uh, reading comprehension, writing, writing ability, right? Is that how you would describe it? Like, you know, for people who have never seen one of these tests or wondering what it is, like, what's on it? What does it do? Yeah, they are numeracy and literacy assessments, and right. and there's a, a number of different um, activities that, stu- that students need to do. And, and I'll, I'll say that we're not opposed to gathering system-wide information about student progress. Uh, we were involved in 2013 in, in some, a series of conversations um, under the former government. They established the advisory group on provincial assessment. At that point, way back in 2013, um, all the partner groups participated in those conversations and all agreed that the FSAs needed to be replaced, that there needed to be good quality data gathered, um, and the FSAs were not the vehicle to do it um, because of the politicized nature of it. How many, how many parents pull their kids out of this test? Like that, A parent has the right to, to pull their child out of the test, correct? And you're advocating the parents do that, right? We are, and it really varies from district to district and school to school. What we've seen in the last couple of years, quite honestly, is a real doubling down on the part of government um, to really pressure school districts to ensure participation rates are high. What this has meant is that pressure has been passed on to individual families who want to withdraw their students for various reasons. And so we're seeing families being contacted, being told that they can't withdraw their children, which actually isn't true. Uh, And so there's a lot of pressure being applied at at the individual family level, which we are also, you know, very... On that, about. on that point, I noted that Patty Backus, the former Vancouver School Board Chair, tweeted the other day that she said that she has heard that some principals were personally calling parents uh, that who had asked for their children not to write the test and telling them that their child must write the FSA, which I'm surprised if that is really happening. Have you heard that? Well, that that is happening. Really? Uh, and it's, it's not new this year. It's been happening at, in a much more systematic way over the last couple of years. Um, And uh, prior to that, you know, this kind of pressure was actually not applied, um, but but there's been a change in the last few years. And uh, and so we're absolutely seeing that pressure. Um, And and yet there is a provision within the FSAs to have students exempted for extenuating circumstances. And, And we know that during a pandemic, there are a whole host of extenuating circumstances that families might, okay. uh, you know, identify. L- let me ask you this, because I've had kids go through these tests, and, and I've heard the teachers' union say, oh, this is a really stressful thing for kids, and it causes anxiety. And I've asked my own children, like, is this test, uh, you know, make you guys worry? No, they had no problem writing the test. You know, my youngest son just wrote the FSA in grade seven a, a, a few weeks ago, and I asked him all about it, and he just shrugged it off. He didn't have any problem with the test. And as a parent... You know, I look at it and say, test my kid. Like, why wouldn't I not want my kid to be tested? You know, my kid's having trouble with reading, writing, arithmetic. I'd like to know. So, I mean, what would you say to parents that just say, like, my kids are not freaked out or panicked about this, and I'd like to to know how my kid's doing? Yeah, well, certainly students are tested in schools and assessed in schools in many different ways. Um, what this is one snapshot of one day uh, or a series of days, actually, because they usually uh, take part over at least a week um, in in a child's uh, academic life. And uh, and again, you know, so we're we're not opposed to teachers doing those assessments. Teachers do those assessments for very specific reasons, and then use them to help students uh, continue their progress. And so yeah. there's a very distinct reason for that. Uh, and, and in terms of the FSAs, we're also not opposed to a system-wide check, as we've said. We think yeah. it needs to be a different test that's not right. misused to undermine the public school system, which is what we're seeing used, you know, being done like, publicly with the FSAs themselves. Right. Like one of the things, uh, one of the groups that supports the FSA test is the, uh, the BC First Nations Education Steering Committee, which I think is a, a very important group. 
in our province that's concerned about Abri- uh, Indigenous and Abri- Aboriginal kids in, in the school system. And they have lo- always supported this test. Like, you know, I'm looking at a comment from uh, one of the presidents of that organization, Tyrone McNeil, saying the data has served an important role in bringing Aboriginal education out of the shadows and shining a light, light on it. Mary Ellen Turpel Lafon, the very respected former children and youth advocate in BC, supports supports this test for Aboriginal kids in our school system. So I don't know. Like, are you are you saying that? What do you say to them? Like, for advocates for Indigenous kids who support this test. Well, you know, absolutely, we see the need to collect information on student progress and particular students who are vulnerable. All these groups were at the table in 2013, and we all recognized the need to gather data, and, right. and we all recognized that the FSAs weren't actually the, the vehicle to do it. But the, the information needs to be gathered, and then something needs to be done with that information. So additional resources need to be targeted to those schools that have students that aren't doing well, um, right. and there needs to be a whole host of efforts devoted to that. And we shouldn't be waiting for one test uh, once a year for that to happen. Uh, teachers identify students that are doing well in school far earlier than February this year, for example. And so to think that we're waiting for one test <clears throat> is just not accurate. But it is information. It is important to have that system-wide information, but it doesn't need to be this particular vehicle. Like, okay. So we had agreed you know, that there needed to be a different uh, way moving forward. And so we've recommended uh, to government that they uh, uh, institute another host of me- a session of meetings, um, similar to the advisory group on provincial assessment that had been convened many years ago, and, and for us to renew that conversation and take a look at what kind okay. of testing will actually help the system. Last question for you. You were mentioning that you were concerned about the ranking of schools that is done based on the test results and noting that private schools tend to rank higher. And I think there's probably a lot of reasons people can understand that, uh, you know, kids who are maybe coming from uh, lower socioeconomic background, got bigger challenges, or, are going to have challenges in school. Uh, this is, this, these rankings are primarily done by the Fraser Institute. Do you think that, and I can understand how teachers would be opposed to that, is there a way that the government could continue doing these tests and just not give these results out publicly, like to the Fraser Institute, to just stop the public ranking of schools? Yeah, and that's one of the conversations that we had in, in 2014 um, with uh, the then Liberal government about, are there ways to protect the data? And uh, at that time, there was a political decision not to do that. But these are the conversations moving forward that we need to have. You know, the other thing about the FSAs is they were never intended to produce individual student results. They were intended as a system-wide check. And so that's why the information that individual families get about their students, it's, it's it's rough information. It's not refined like a classroom teacher would do. And so uh, okay. that's, uh, that's something that we, you know, are very interested in having conversations moving forward. We're certainly hoping to put an end to this, and, yeah. and there certainly is a way to do that. Terry, thank you for coming on today. Thanks so much, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Here we go now with yesterday's successful touchdown on Mars of the Perseverance rover. This is the most advanced rover ever landed on the surface of the red planet. It will search for signs of life in an ancient river delta on the Martian surface. Such an exciting scene yesterday at Mission Control as the rover spacecraft plummeted through the Martian atmosphere, deployed the parachute, landed on the surface successfully, all done by computer automation, of course. It always blows my mind every time they manage to pull this off. Here's what it sounded like. We have just heard the news that Perseverance is alive on the surface of Mars. Congratulations to the mission. And looks like we have some more news in. It looks like we're getting the first image. Here, take a look at the first image. Flight, this is OL3. I have uh, the target point on the map when you are ready. We are ready, OL3. Go for it. 
Okay. I love watching those NASA scientists doing the fist pumps there as they successfully land another rover on the Martian surface. Okay, let's talk about this now with my guest. Christopher Hurd, he is a NASA scientist. He has worked on the Mars Perseverance mission. He is at the University of Alberta in the Earth and Atmospheric Sciences program there. Very pleased to welcome him to the show. Christopher, thanks a lot for coming on. Oh, no problem. My pleasure. Uh, congratulations on your great success yesterday. That's, that's awesome. What, what did that feel like for you? They call it the seven minutes of terror, right? While this uh, spacecraft goes through the atmosphere. What was that like for you yesterday? I- it was intense. You know, I, this is the first time I've been involved in a mission like this, and it's just incredible. That seven minutes, you know, they kept, you know, counting, essentially counting down, like, each stage. And, you know, the spacecraft goes from going, screaming through space to gently landing on the surface. It is. It was just amazing. Yeah, it really is incredible, the technology on this, because as the, as the rover comes down, you get the parachute deploys, and then the... You correct me if I'm wrong, but it actually sort of flies over the surface of Mars, right, looking for a safe landing spot, right, all, all automatically. That's right. It had it had uh, uh, maps kind of on board in the computer that it could co-register, essentially. It could tell where it was relative to those maps, and it knew from those maps safe areas to land and not so safe areas to land. And it then was able to divert and then touch down in a safe area. And if you look at the pictures of the of this like safe versus not safe, it's in this narrow little strip between two unsafe areas. So I mean wow. it worked perfectly. Wow, that's amazing. All done by computer automation, which I, I just find incredible. Congratulations, Christopher. That's that's awesome for you. Can you tell me uh the work that you've done? It's it's great to know that Canadian scientists are, are working on this mission. What was your role here in, in the mission? Well, my role is really just getting going. So I was added okay. to the mission officially uh, about a year and a half ago as a, as a professor at University of Alberta. I'm supported by the Canadian Space Agency as what's called a participating scientist on the mission. And so that means I'm a full science team member. But my, my job is really to help the mission uh, decide where to stop and collect samples. So we're going to do this exploration with all these great instruments on board. But the added bonus of this particular mission is that it's going to take core samples and these in, in seal them in sleeves and then when we get enough of them we'll actually set them down on the surface of mars in a cache that will be available for later missions to come along and pick up and bring back to the earth okay that that's amazing tell me a little bit about this area of mars uh where the rover has landed it's like an ancient river delta right can you tell me about that area that's right. It's called Jezero Crater. It's about 45 kilometers across, and we think about three and a half to four billion years ago, uh, it was filled with water with a river flowing into it, as you said, and, that, and it, it deposited this delta, and we have deltas on the Earth. I mean, you know, the Mississippi and other places, uh, and uh, the water's drained away, of course, but now we're left with these rocks that are beautifully exposed. Um, and so that's the environment that we think, you know, if life as we know it, existed there three and a half billion years ago in that kind of environment we it probably would have thrived so the major driver for this mission is to look for evidence of ancient life recorded in these rocks right right and you mentioned that the rover could uh, get some of these rock samples seal them seal them in a in a in a sleeve and then and then you'd go back to mars later and pick them up is that the plan that's the idea, yeah. yeah. I mean, it, really the thing is that Rover is extremely capable. There's lots of phenomenal instruments on board, both you know, that can look at the rocks at a distance and then also on the end of the arm that can analyze the chemistry and the minerals. Um, and we're gonna, so we're going to tell a lot, and we're going to get hints, we hope, of the best possible rocks that might have this evidence for ancient life. But you've got to have the sample brought back to Earth in order to really tell for sure that life was there because that's how difficult it is to tell if life was there in an, ancient, in an old rock. And so, the, yeah, there's a series of follow-on missions that would have to be sent. There's plans that are in place for that already. There's an agreement be, between NASA and the European Space Agency to develop the follow-on missions, including a fetch rover to fetch the samples and collect them up, blast them off the surface of Mars in a rocket, and then that would rendezvous with a, with a spacecraft in orbit around Mars and bring them home to Earth around 2031 at the earliest. Unbelievable. That's incredible. That just blows my mind. This kind of stuff. What's it like for you to work on this mission? I mean, this has got this is like a dream come true for you to work on a mission like this. Uh, oh, absolutely. I, 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 I grew up. Uh, I mean, I, I at thirteen, I said I wanted to work on samples that come back from Mars, and so oh. for me, it is like a. It would. It, this is the first tangible step in 
realizing a lifelong dream for me. That's awesome, Christopher. Speaking of Christopher Hurd from the University of Alberta, he's a NASA scientist working on the Mars Perseverance mission. Tell me a little bit about this rover, because this is a real advanced rover, right? They've got more instrumentation and cameras on this one than we've seen in past rovers, right? Oh, absolutely. It's definitely the most advanced that we've seen on the, on the mast itself. It's, it's, they're actually just about to release, I think, today or tomorrow from the deck. There's a, there's a camera that can see not only in the colors that we see, but into um, the infrared, so they can see, we can see signatures of, of minerals at a distance. It also has a laser <laughs> that zaps rocks up to seven meters away, and then we can tell the composition of the, the rocks from the, from the, like the plasma, the, basically the light that this is produced from the laser hitting the rock. And then on the end of this really beefy arm, there's the coring device, the thing that takes the samples, but it also has a couple of other instruments that can allow us to see the, you know, the texture of the rock up close and also, the, as I mentioned before, the chemistry and the mineralogy of, of the rock and also look for things like organic matter. It's sensitive to that too. Um, in addition, it's got a ground-penetrating radar that we can use to see what's beneath the surface yeah. And it even has a tool, a test bed kind of device to create oxygen from the Martian atmosphere called MOXIE that could help pave the way for future human exploration. Wow. Thank goodness it landed safely. <laughs> Absolutely. I know there's a lot riding on that. Yep. <laughs> oh, no kidding, man. Like, there's so much stuff on there. That's, that's awesome that it, that it lands. Uh, like, does that blow your mind that they're able, that they're able to pull that off? Like, that, that, that seven minutes of terror. I mean, your heart must have been in your in your mouth there at that point was it i mean what what's going through your mind during that moment when they're oh, when there's a landing absolutely i mean any any number of things could have gone wrong yeah there were something like 158 pyrotechnics that had to fire in sequence like 158 little explosions to kind of release this or that in those seven minutes and it all went perfectly and actually just a, like an hour ago or so they released an image that will blow your mind which is taken from essentially the jet pack descent stage, looking down at the top of the rover suspended on the tether just before it touches down on Mars. So wow. your listeners, check that out. It is absolutely phenomenal. So, and we're just starting to get those kind of images back because it always takes time to sort of get the data right. relayed back through spacecraft. So we're going to see some really amazing things in the next few days. I love it. We just got one minute left. What about the, uh, the helicopter? Can you tell me quickly about that? Yeah, it's a technology demonstration. It's strapped to the belly of the rover, and it and it's if it works, it'll be the first powered flight on another planet. Um, because, and the Martian atmosphere is really thin, about a hundredth of that of the the density of that of the Earth. So it's a challenge to do it. They have to have these rotors that spin really, really fast. So what we'll do is uh, the rover will find a suitable spot to drop it off and then back away, and then it will do its tests. It'll go up a couple, three meters maybe at a time over actually uh, the better part of a month to do all the testing wow. and the rover will just act as a relay for it but it'll take pictures and everything as well and the actually the the helicopter has a camera on the bottom of it that will take pictures so we're hoping we'll get that that overhead shot of the rover from a little helicopter wow just amazing unbelievable christopher congratulations on all your great success and enjoy the rest of the mission thank you very much <laughs> okay nice